Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. First of all, I want to welcome uh, and give a really, really warm welcome uh, to Dr. Jules Brunel, um, who's going to make some initial remarks about U.S. food policy. Uh, Dr. Brunel uh, joined USDA um, in May 2021, been on Zoom ever since probably. Um, And before that, she was commissioner of the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Uh, We should also note, by the way, that Dr. Brenner is the first black deputy secretary in the USDA's history. So congratulations to you uh, for that breakthrough achievement. So let me invite you to take the stage, make your remarks. And then we're going to have a conversation. You're welcome. Good to see you all. How's everybody doing today? Good. Thanks for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, um, Just a a little bit about me. As you were introducing me, I just thought about... um, you know, a little bit of my background. I come, I used to be a high school teacher. That's how I started my career. I have a background in education. Uh, everyone in my family is a teacher or a principal of some sort. And um, I had a, a different role getting to this position, having been uh, a person who worked for extension and served as a dean uh, for a college of agriculture at an 1890 historically black land grant college and university, Virginia State University. Uh, And I did a lot of work there uh, with small and limited resource farmers. And I remember when I was going through the nominations process, um, there were questions. People would always say, well, we've never heard of you. And I would go, well, I've never heard of you either. (laughs) Or they would say, you know, does she know enough about commodity agriculture? And um, I did have an opportunity to work as the Virginia's commissioner of agriculture. So I feel like my work was well-balanced. I've been able throughout my career to see different sides of agriculture, but I always say that we need everyone at the table, everyone at the table to get to these solutions. So I'm indeed honored to be here. Thank you all so much for having me. Um, And and as I think about us entering a a new year, I think we're all um, wanting the same thing. We wanna hit the ground running in terms of helping those that we know we uh, can provide impact for and that we're mission to serve. Um, it's an honor to be here at your, your flagship event, the first of five uh, dis- discussing the importance of food systems around the world. And certainly at USDA, we share your commitment to making impact in this space. So we've embarked on a journey and we have set a priority to fundamentally reshape and reimagine the way our food systems work in this country and of course abroad. This transformation effort is not only one that's really important to us at USDA, it's one that's really important to the vision of the Biden-Harris administration as well. And we think about um, the things that this administration has focused on. And we recently 
saw the White House conference on uh, hunger, nutrition, and health, uh, which took place in this past fall, uh, last year. It was the first time in 50 years that a conference marked by the White House really focused on trying to uh, initiate action to protect millions of Americans who were struggling with food insecurity and diet-related diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Um, and this administration, because of this event, was able to secure over $8 billion in new commitments to support efforts to eliminate hunger and poverty. And these partnerships, the partnerships that were generated from this effort, engaged everyone, um, many organizations and, and private businesses and how we could raise money to support these efforts. This is at the root of our efforts to help transform the food system in this country and all throughout the world. Recognizing, as Peter said, that when we bolster our supply chains, when we work to improve access to healthy foods, when we grow new and better markets, we're aren't, we aren't just strengthening the economy, we're also bringing health and we're bringing prosperity to everyone who eats. In other words, this work matters to all of us to everyone in this room and to all of the folks that we have the opportunity to work with. And I'm grateful to organizations like the Global Council for bringing us together to see how we can solve the problems and get this work done across the globe. Because it's gonna take all of us, businesses, activists, community leaders, and, gov and the government certainly to make changes at last. And for me, one of, one of the honors that I have had in serving as Deputy Secretary is is having a front row view to the amazing work that happens, the work that you all are doing, the work that we are trying so hard to do at USDA, because we have worked really hard at USDA to support the supply chain, both at home and, and abroad. And I thank Secretary Vilsack for his vision for pushing us to make sure that we do that. And because so many of you all are part of the international community, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of our trade-related efforts. Um, having the opportunity to work on these issues over uh, the past couple of trips that I've been able to take, to be able to engage with foreign governments, international customers and users and beneficiaries of USDA programs around the globe have, have given me a very interesting perspective uh, my very first trip in 2021 was the UN Food Systems pre-summit. And at that pre-summit, you know, I thought about some of those discussions and a, a lot of different representative in agriculture wanting to make sure that they were at the table as we had these discussions. And we were able to launch the Coalition of Sustainable Productivity Growth. We call it the SPG Coalition. Uh, we were doing that in order to accelerate the transformation of sustainable food systems through productivity growth. Productivity growth that focused on sustainability from several different vantage points, not only environmental sustainability, but also social sustainability and, and economic sustainability. And then we built on the success of the UN Food Systems Summit through the launch of that coalition and work with countries to build consensus on some of our shared priorities, including hunger, nutrition, climate change, and inclusion and equity. Those are important conversations. And so getting to interact with leaders and people to focus on 
those key principles and how we're going to lead with science, how we're going to lead with innovation, how we will enable trade, how we will build our rural communities and make investments in rural infrastructure all the way to redefine food systems in our country. And the anniversary of the UN Food System Summit a year later came on the heels of a trade mission to the UK. Um, that happened right before the G20 uh, Agricultural Minister Summit in Indonesia. And it just showed how invigorated that people are from across the globe to enhance nutrition and food systems, nutrition security for all, to see people in different countries having an openness, an openness to come to the table, to have discussions, to think about the reduction of trade barriers and, and non-tariff barriers. Uh, these are important conversations. To, to go to the UK and see them interested, they didn't bring up chlorinated chicken when we had those discussions. They, they wanted to talk about and even visit the United States. And, and um, there were leaders from the UK who came to the United States to visit a pork processing facility. And I thought, how open-minded to come and learn and to share and be educated, just as we have to be educated as well. And even as we gather here today in D.C., I'm told that there are per participants in this conference that will come from Belgium and South Africa and everywhere in between. And having that broad buy-in and input matters so much. It matters to the challenges we face because they are lofty, uh, but we have an important and collective goal that we have to reach. Um, we've seen in the past few years that we will have roadblocks. Those are inevitable. Um, of course, whether it be the Russia's aggression on the Ukraine, a global pandemic, climate a crisis, et cetera, we know that our food systems work, but we have to make sure that they are resilient. Um, and whether we look at the challenges we have now, we understand that there will be more to come in the future, but we're here to make those lasting changes. And that's why meetings like this are so important to really have a collective vision for how we're gonna work together. And when we have problems on a massive scale, I always say there's no challenge that we cannot overcome if we do not work together. And so we're all committed to the same thing. And we know that because we're seeing that in action, that commitment. And in our agricultural exports in the United States, we're really proud that uh, they hit a record high we increased more than 14% in our agricultural exports over 2021. And that's a big deal. Uh, there's a market for American goods and products and a desire for our products. And it means that there's an undeniable desire of our trade partners to work together to meet, uh, get their goods and get our products and services to their country. We're leaning into these mutual needs and we're acknowledging that the politics of food isn't just the dealings of world leaders. There's an inter interconnectedness in all that we do in agriculture, bete between our global agricultural workers, relationships with our trade partners. And it's about recognize recognizing that a hungry person in Ethiopia can be fed by a farmer in Kansas. A shipper in Louisiana can bring food to families in rural Vietnam. This is about all of us, ladies and gentlemen, and I am certainly glad to be here. I'm glad to have you all engaged in this conversation. Uh, and I look forward to more continued conversation. So thank you all so much. And Peter, happy to engage in a fireside chat. Yes, and serious 
roadblocks, uh, and those are clear. I mean, you come to this subject with so much, you know, experience of helping farmers and families in rural communities uh, in uh, in Virginia, and of course these. Uh, farmers, families, and rural communities are sort of replicated across the entire uh, world. Uh, and the world is now, in a sense, your platform uh, and not just Virginia, obviously. So I wonder whether we could start with a sort of taking a sort of helicopter uh, view um, uh, of um, US policy and, and food diplomacy. Um, as I said, the United States is what largest food producer, largest food exporter, um, and provider of food aid. Very importantly, let me ask you just at the outset to sum up, if you will, you know what this means for the United uh, States in terms of its global power and and global responsibilities uh, and America's own economic interests. How does the national, as it were, interact with the global, both in respect of the power that the United States has and the responsibilities that it assumes? Great question. Um, and again, I'm very uh, proud to have an opportunity to be on this platform. You, you all can imagine some years ago, we in the United States talked about domestic food production. Um, we thought less on a global economy than we did uh, about our own economy here in the United States. And you think about now, um, we're all interconnected globally. Um, that being said, I think we're very proud in the United States that we have the ability to produce uh, safe food, that we have the ability to uh, produce high quality food. Mm -hmm. And so one, um, we, we are fortunate that we have strategies for producing food. But, you know, as we work uh, throughout the globe, other countries are, are challenged by some of that. So I think, you know, we have, um, it's, the onus is on us to be able to, to share our research and our science and our data that can help other countries to be able to do that because everybody cannot feed their population. Um, so as we think about being on a global platform, how can we do our work to work with other countries to reduce trade barriers, to be able to uh, innovate, to be able to utilize science-based decision-making so that we all can produce sustainable supply of food to feed everyone in the world. So US food exports really go to the heart of tackling other people's food insecurity uh, in the world. You approach this from the very important base and standpoint of the Department agriculture. How does it interact and how does that, that role and those policies that you pursue in the department interact with U.S. foreign policy and, and U.S. Uh, security interests? Well, it's certainly an integral part. Um, one thing that I will say about uh, trade, U.S. food and ag products are an easy sell. We're really proud of that, right? Um, when I have had the opportunity to go to other countries and speak with uh, ministers of agriculture in, in the leadership, I always talk about U.S. food is the safest, most high quality food in the world. Um, the reason being is the experience of, has been that 
there are other countries throughout the world that want to be um, in, in de- completely independent. They want to produce all the food that they need mm-hmm. to survive. And we know that that's, that's a challenge. Um, countries who claim to be uh, completely independent and don't need other countries in terms of uh, food assistance, I have rarely seen that happen, if, if ever. Um, so it's really important for us to think about how can we talk about getting uh, safe and sustainable supplies of food. And so um, we're really proud, one, of our food safety standards in the United States. Um, because when I say that we have amongst the safest food in the entire world, um, when you compare our standards to global sanitary and phytosanitary standards, we always exceed that. Mm. People trust us. Uh, we innovate. And so our food is high quality. And we want to make sure that we can provide those quantities of food. Um, we're trying to work really hard to make sure that as other countries think about trade, that they do not put uh, barriers to trade in place. I think that's really important, especially now when there's a need for global food supply. Uh, we've been working to encourage countries to, to not implement um, unscience-based tariffs um, and non, non-tariff barriers on food because it's important that we keep that going. So at USDA, we're working really hard uh, to try to provide the type of support that's needed to be able to do that through our programs. We're uh, working to create new market opportunities here in the U.S. Um, what are some of those new opportunities in terms of, you know, increasing organic production or even urban agriculture, for example? Those are those are really important. Um, we have worked hard to monitor um, animal diseases and other types of diseases. You know, in terms of our work with on high pathogenic avian influenza and African swine fever, how do we monitor those diseases and address those? And then our foreign ag services and using uh, resources to try to increase exports in the U- U.S., but also to have those trade missions. Um, those trade missions are huge because we're able to go to other countries and have those conversations to say, you know, what products do you need from the United States? What products from your country do we need in the United States? Um, and really thinking about um, how we really negotiate and enforce trade agreements. Uh, Doug McCaleb, um, he is a new ambassador at USAID. And just yesterday, he, um, he went through his ceremony to get to start his new job. And he came in the office and he goes, I think we can get a, a UK free trade agreement in place. And he was like, we need to work together on this thing. And I got so excited about it because we'd been to the UK and we worked on, on this and we don't have anything in place. And to hear, to hear him and USTR talk about the confidence in that, I'm like, yes, there's an opportunity to work together and we need to work together. So you think there could be a free trade agreement in the offing between the United States and the UK? We're certainly going to work on it. And USTR is going to work on that because it's a really, really big priority. Um, you know, right now we can't do anything without that free trade agreement in place. Well, you'll be central to that because um, let's not go down this particular rabbit hole, but uh, agriculture and food standards are absolutely the heart of any negotiation between our two countries. Um, let's put that aside for one moment, if, if I may. I want to come back to issues to do with trade uh, presently, uh, but just focus for a moment on Ukraine. Uh, because what Russia is very, very cynically doing 
and is trying to sort of shift the responsibility, the blame for the loss of food supply from their own invasion of Ukraine to the sanctions that the liberal democracies have been uh, pursuing uh, against Russia following their invasion. What is the US doing to mitigate this loss of global food supply as a result of uh, Russia's uh, brutal invasion of Ukraine, um, particularly for emerging economies, those outside Europe in Africa and Asia, uh, who uh, are getting the, uh, you know, suffering, taking the, feeling the pain of Russia's invasion? That's a good question. First of all, we know that what Russia's saying is not true. Um, and that, that was something at the G20 summit uh, in Indonesia that I, first of all, was important to speak out against. I was, the U.S. was not the only country who uh, you know, openly denounced the aggression of Russia on Ukraine. So one thing was, again, to encourage people to not establish those trade barriers. Now is not the, the time for that. Um, we have to keep the free flow of trade, the free flow of, of uh, ag commodities, the wheats and the grains that are needed in the countries. So having that conversation is one. Um, we, one, in terms of for us being able to um, deal with some of the issues around uh, fertilizer and fertilizer inputs, um, creating a new uh, fertilizer expansion production program here in the United States allows us to be able to produce domestic fertilizer, reduce the inputs, and be able to effectively produce more crops. But then we relied also on um, our partnership with USAID through the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust. We pulled down as much of that money uh, as we could um, to the tune of about $670 million to purchase U.S. food commodities um, that could be shipped to about six different countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Yemen because we know, those, we know those are critical food supplies. So we've relied on much of our food aid assistance um, and other programs in those countries to try to help offset some of the impacts of the uh, I mean, it, it aggression. looks as if this war could go on for quite some considerable uh, time. Uh, I mean, both the United States and the European Union want desperately to halt Russia's invasion, but at the same time, uh, we want to prevent famine in the rest of the world. Should the war go on for a, quite a period, which I think is likely, are there any other policy options that we can look at? Is there anything else that we can look to do to mitigate, to alleviate the impact on food supplies and security in the rest of the world as this brutal war continues? Um, I think we're going to continue to have to keep folks at the table, one, to think about um, how we'll need to continue to rely on some form of food aid for some time. I think that's the reality. So it's kind of like you help people crawl until they can walk. Mm. Um, again, we're relying on what we have continued to rely on, keeping a free flow of trade and, and certainly USDA is investing resources and having those conversations to continue to do that, to utilize um, our science and research to teach other countries how to efficiently and sustainably produce enough food within those countries. Um, and as we've been on these trade missions, especially when we went to Africa, the countries were interested, even though they weren't open to uh, GMO produced commodities, 
they're starting to think about it because in countries with severe drought or suffering from war and other issues, we, they have to look at other mechanisms for being able to produce enough safe and nutritious food to feed the country. Um, and so we are talking about the science behind that, how that those types of products can be used to produce enough food to feed a country in, in, a, in a global war that will continue. Are those countries receptive to that? Because, you know, GMOs have some controversy of course. associated uh, uh, with them. I remember uh, in Brussels when I was a uh, uh, trade commissioner, some of our member states were keener than mm-hmm. others, if I can put it like uh, that. How receptive do you think countries in Africa, for example, are to the use of GMOs? Personally, uh, I'm rather more persuaded by the science. Uh, I don't actually see how we're going to feed the rest of the world with such a sort of burgeoning population without using such scientific means. But do you encounter a receptiveness or a nervousness amongst uh, countries as far as GMOs, for example, are concerned? There's both. I always said, as a, as a college professor, you want to have a good conversation. You get a group of college kids and talk about the GMO thing. That can go on forever. I used to love that conversation. Um, and, and I've been on both sides uh, in my career, um, focusing on, you know, the organic production, you know, versus the use of GMOs, for example. Um, as you go and you travel, I think that there's still some hesitation um, about the safety. But there, the hesitation is if you ask, why are you hesitant? It's often based on unscientific rationales. Um, folks have not dug into the science or there are things that they believe specifically about GMO-based products that you know they still believe until we have an opportunity to educate them about how they can be produced efficiently and products can, are safe for use. So for example, in Africa, uh, we went to Kenya and Kenya had uh, a newly elected uh, president. And because of the drought um, in sub-Saharan Africa, a five-year drought that has created a lot of hunger, um, it's, it's decimated uh, a lot of agricultural commodities and livestock, he was open to overturning that policy and actually agreed to do so. When I had a conversation with him, I said, you know, how do you feel about other countries who will likely not support this? Because other countries that we visited, Zanzibar, Tanzania, for example, they were not supportive of that. And he said that he wanted to move forward to do it anyway. It's very bold. Has he done it? Not yet. So that means there's more conversation to have because he was concerned about um, having drought tolerant maize in Kenya because it was so necessary. People are hungry. They don't have enough agricultural feed there. Is it from public opinion? Is it from commercial or agricultural interests or or just a desire by some people not to sort of rock the boat or stimulate any controversy? I don't know. My, right. my sense was I was getting I was getting some pushback from countries that they felt like we can be independent. We don't. We don't. We can produce our own food, and we can feed our own people. And we do. We don't have to do it the we American way. That's right. We don't have to do it that way. We yeah. can do. But I don't know if the the data was showing that they could really do that. I think they were saying that, but we weren't seeing the evidence that that was happening. Kenya's president said we've got to do something different. 
And so he was he was very open to that. Um, him thinking in that way certainly put him in a leadership role, but I can imagine with other countries surrounding him, not necessarily quite that ready, some kind of willing to do some research and implement some, some on-farm trials to do that. Some were kind of ready. So there are different stages. And I think we're at a, a really pivotal time where we could show them how we could create those partnerships and show them how that could work. I think there would definitely be some openness. And so that's why we have more work to do to educate and talk about the science and show them how um, it can be very effective in terms of dealing with some real issues that they have, you know, mitigating the impacts of climate change and really trying to solve some real problems. Um, when you go to a, a country and we have school feeding programs um, in various parts of Africa, for me to go to a school and we were so happy to celebrate a school feeding program, which Kenya had been able to become independent in feeding their own children and feeding children who eat every other day, every other day, school age children that eat every other day. You cannot deny that something else needs to happen. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we were really, really passionate about what can we do to be partners to help countries who need nutritious, sustainable food supplies so that their children can grow up and they can be healthy citizens and make important contributions going forward. It's really interesting what you're saying because it's a, a very different sort of language and set of priorities um, and interest actually on the part of the US government from the sort of traditional trade policy approach. Uh, that we've seen over uh, decades. I mean, the, the, the sort of conventional sort of view of American uh, trade policies that you're basically just searching for markets for U.S. agricultural surpluses, um, you know, and using these as a way of stabilizing you know, U.S. domestic uh, ag prices. Mm -hmm. Now, I assume that is still an important oh, yeah. part and feature. Uh, of your approach, but you're sort of painting on a slightly larger, wider canvas, which I find very interesting. I mean, how how much uh, of the of the approach that you're describing is part of U.S. trade policy? I mean, when you're searching for uh, free trade agreements with other countries, I know they're not so terribly in fashion at the moment. Free trade agreements, oh, of course, um, um, almost anywhere, but particularly here. Um, how much it, it does agriculture and dealing and finding export routes uh, for agricultural produce? How much does that play still play a major part in your trade in, in America's trade strategy? Well, I think the, the reality is that still exists. So uh, when you think about trade missions, and we we take cooperators and we take, you know, food-based businesses and organizations over there. Ideally, they're looking to sell more U.S. food products, U.S. commodities in other countries. But you kind of have to have to step back. This is a relationship. Um, it's no different from someone coming to your house and saying, look, I've got something that you're going to want to buy and you should want to buy it because it's the best. Right. It's about relationship building. I think we realize that now. Um, it's just not about us going and selling and selling and selling. I think the folks that went on the trade missions that I've had the opportunity to lead understand 
you have to build a relationship for it to be sustainable. There has to be a level of trust. There has to be a level of understanding. So I think a little bit more than there used to be. I can't tell you to what percentage people are understanding that this international work is not only about making sure that we get important U.S. food and ag products across the world, but we have relationships because they're products that we also can benefit from from other countries. So it's an investment in a broader economy. We've got more work to do, but I'm, I'm seeing that we're thinking about that a little bit more. One sensitive dimension in U.S. food diplomacy is the issue of food aid and the provision of food aid in kind which some people characterize as you know, the US government taking the country's food surpluses and sort of dumping them on other people's uh, markets. And this is something that was regularly you know, raised in world trade discussions, of which I was part those years ago. Do you think that concern has any merit? Well, I think people um, are concerned about that. They'll have their opinions about that. But when we think about how we marry the food aid with being able to partner and provide technical assistance and provide um, infusions of, of science and, and, and innovation to help countries be sustainable, I think that's where we're trying to move from just the aid mm -hmm. to trying to help develop sustainability. Um, there are countries who have relied on US, the USA for, for food aid, but um, several that I've spoken with are like, we, we want to be self-sustainable. We, we don't want to continue to have to rely, but we need the technical assistance and we need to understand how we utilize systems like extension and others to be able to do that. And, and a lot of times when you're helping people, you have to help them a little longer sometimes than you, than you intend to initially. But if you can continue on and you can empower them, educate them and assist them with what they need to be sustainable, you can get there. So um, I'm certainly I'm sure that there are uh, those concerns that continue. But at USDA, we're trying to think about how we can build sustainable productivity growth. And that's why it's really important for those conversations like the SPG coalition and aim for climate. Um, aim for climate is where we've been able to, uh, you know, get. 41, uh, 38 countries and 41 organizations to invest in innovation. And that's innovation throughout the world. And it's those types of investments that will help countries be self-sustained and have resources to be self-sustained. So we're excited about those world-based conversations that we're having now that we weren't having five and 10 years ago. Let me touch on climate because the connection between agriculture and climate is so, is so strong. I mean, basically, how do we square the growing global demand for food with the need to stop global warming? Uh, I mean, is the answer simply to produce and eat less meat, uh, in particular beef uh, and, and dairy? Uh, should we be telling people to eat less rice, uh, you know, which is a staple in people's diets around the world? Um, but it emits apparently as much carbon as chicken and pork production combined. So what's your, what's your approach here? I mean, what are you telling mm -hmm. uh, your own public and your own agricultural constituencies about how practices need to change in order to take greater account of the climate? 
good question. Um, I always say I'm not telling people what to eat and what not to eat. Um, You're you know, a politician. I'm so. a politician. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we have been thinking about the important work of U.S. farmers and food production married with, with uh, climate-smart agriculture. And that's where we've been focusing our resources and we've been focusing our attention. Um, you know, our, our president's commitment to the reduction of greenhouse gases and, and all of government effort to figure out how we're going to do that is certainly, along with resources that we provided, we have gotten historic funding from the Inflation Reduction Act that's come to USDA uh, for our um, NRCS conservation programs. And now uh, we've also looked at how we can empower farmers with tools and resources to implement climate smart practices um, and reduce greenhouse gas reduction. So that's what we've done. Um, you all may have heard of earlier this year or last year, late last year, we announced our partnership for climate smart commodities. Um, since that time, since September, when we announced the first round of funding, we've been able to invest $3.1 billion in about 141 pilot projects. And these pilot projects are really focused on providing technical assistance to implement um, climate smart practices, uh, things that farmers have been doing for, for years, uh, you know, no-till. Let me ask you about one of those. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's my favorite. I was looking at this and I saw that one of the extraordinary projects that you're uh, funding, and I'm a sort of a fan of early American history, uh, is the Tribal Buffalo market initiative mm -hmm. uh, which it provides incentives to raise buffalo which are thought to be better for the environment and for consumers diets than cows mm -hmm. is this going to take off well, in the united states i mean i tell you what for the tribal communities yeah. um, who are focused they're very focused on indigenous foods and certainly uh, for tribal communities that um, how they can focus on buffalo production is extremely important. But there's a. There's is this taken off in Virginia? Oh, I, I eat bison meat. Do you? Yes, I do. It's great. Um, anybody else had bison meat? Hey. See? Folks, I want bison meat. <laughs> you eat buffalo, you guys? <laughs> it, bison meat is, is a high quality protein that is lean and. Any, any of the folks in here who've been on a, a diet that we were trying to reduce our fat intake, bison is like a thing to eat. See, we're educating right now. See? I just can't imagine what the reaction of European trade policy, you know, they might be quite keen on it. Have you tried it out on your counterparts in Europe to see whether we might open up a whole new <laughs> flow of... <laughs> proteins. I have not had bison a bison trade? conversation in terms of uh, in, in conversations with the UK, but but in terms of uh, I tell you what, at the in the UK trade mission, when we went on that trade mission, yeah. there was a, a, a company in, in Arizona that produced bison it was a, a tribal community who was on that trade mission. So this is good for climate, good for health, good for nutrition. Good for market development. For good sure. for market development. Mm -hmm. And reduction of greenhouse gas reductions, because th these partnerships, we hope over the course of five years, are going to um, help 
in terms of greenhouse gas reductions to the tune of sequestering 60 million metric tons. That's, that's 12 million gasoline-powered vehicles off the road for a year. Wow. Okay. Well, I happen to live part of the, every week on a farm, uh, two hours' drive from London. And this is the message. This is the story I'm taking back uh, to the Bison English meat. countryside. <laughs> go big, go bison. <laughs> You've already marketed. You've already put a market. I, I can it. just see it. I can see it now. I'm, this is a whole new world for me. Jewel, thank you very much indeed for what has been a wonderful conversation. Thank and you. you are just so on top and across all this and so articulated uh, about it. Um, I think your country is very lucky. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having much. me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.